America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day to face the great question. What is it that is so fascinating about Theodore Roosevelt? Why is he next to Lincoln, the one president whose image is most vivid for people today? It's a hundred years after his death in 1919. And yet he's with us. And I would submit that part of the reason for that is because he remains incurably youthful, optimistic, dynamic, and purposeful, very much like the country he loved and served. In fact, he remains Theodore Roosevelt, the all-American boy. Certainly part of the fascination with Roosevelt was his amazing accomplishments. I mean, he did build the Panama Canal. He won the Nobel Peace Prize for mediating European war as president of the United States. He won an astonishingly lopsided victory. He enjoyed amazing popularity during his seven and a half years as president. But um, Theodore Roosevelt's personality is part of what commanded the attention of the world. And part of that personality was a great love and reverence for what he called the manly virtues. He saw himself as a warrior his whole life. He enjoyed boxing. He even took an early interest in jujitsu. And yet it was not until he was 39 years old that he actually was able to experience combat and insisted that he do so. At the time, he was Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and basically he he gave his philosophy over to the Naval War College when he had taken this new job as Assistant Secretary. Seven weeks into the job, he spoke to them, And he said to the students there at the Naval War College, all the great masterful races have been fighting races. Cowardice is the unpardonable sin. No triumph of peace is quite so great as the supreme triumphs of war. It may be that at some time in the dim future of the race, the need for war will vanish. But that time is as yet ages distant. It is through strife, or the readiness for strife, that a nation must win greatness. I think what he's talking about is his own militant version of peace through strength. By the time he took on the job as Assistant Secretary of the Navy under President McKinley, he had remarried and became very quickly the father of six children. The circumstances of his remarriage, like everything about Theodore Roosevelt, are Utterly extraordinary, haunted, fate-filled, strange, but quite wonderful. It turns out that he married one of his closest childhood playmates that he had a crush on from the age of seven. And earlier in this broadcast, I was sharing with you some of the, the excerpts from a childhood diary that he had kept when he was 10 years old and touring Europe with his family. 
And uh, that diary is very well excerpted in the fine book, The Roosevelt's An Intimate History. It's by Jeffrey C. Ward and Ken Burns. It's associated with the the TV series on the Roosevelt's that Burns produced. And one of the excerpts from uh, the diary, and this is in uh, November of 1869, and again, he had just turned 10 years old. He writes, November 22nd, Paris. Mama showed me the portrait of Edith Caro, and her face stirred in me homesickness and longing for the past which will come back again, never, alack, never. Edith Carroll, that playmate whose picture she was seven years old in the picture that he looked at and that he had longing for, is the woman he married. After the death of his wife, his first wife, well, on the same day that his mother died, he had no intention of launching a connection with anyone but he ran into edith and they began corresponding and they secretly became engaged a year and a half after alice's death and then they married quietly in england in london their marriage the letters that passed between them the love that passed between them the devotion that passed between them for the rest of theodore's life is inspiring and it's quite wonderful. And it makes it all the more surprising when joining Princess Alice, the firstborn child who was two and a half when uh, her father married her stepmother, were quickly five other children, four remarkable boys and a remarkable daughter. And uh, Roosevelt had a busy home, he had a busy literary career, but he also believed that the United States needed to take a forceful role in the Western Hemisphere in keeping any European colonial powers out. And the most obvious target for that forcefulness was Spain. There was a rebellion in Cuba that had provoked all kinds of Spanish atrocities, and the whole Spanish Empire, what remained of it, seemed to be vulnerable. And Long before the actual war broke out and President McKinley went to Congress and got a declaration of war against Spain, Theodore Roosevelt, during the absence of his boss, the Secretary of the Navy, John D. Long, took advantage of his position to position squadrons to tell them all to be prepared for immediate war. And he especially sent a telegram, famous telegram, on his own initiative without checking with the president or his boss, as assistant secretary of the Navy, he sent a telegram to Commodore George Dewey to be ready to attack the Spanish fleet in the Philippines in Manila Bay. The result of that is the very moment that Congress declared war. A Dewey steamed into Manila and wiped out the Spanish fleet. And there wasn't a single American sailor who died in that astonishing victory. Now, Roosevelt, of course, had also built up the Navy during the previous two years he'd served as Assistant Secretary, and he had the idea that America had to have an absolutely dominant Navy to patrol both oceans of the United States, not an Atlantic power like Britain, not a Pacific power like Japan was becoming, but both oceans. 
And he might have stayed in his position, but he wanted desperately to go to the front. People said, look, you have six children at home. They depend on you. You're 39 years old. It couldn't stop him with a friend who had actually won the Medal of Honor, Leonard Wood, fighting against the Indians in the West. Leonard Wood was also a doctor. He organized a new regiment. They called it the Rough Riders. It would be a cavalry regiment. Yes, the cavalry was still important in 1898. And in Jeffrey Ward's book, he writes very well about the Rough Riders. There had never been a regiment like it. 1,000 eager horsemen, mostly from the West, Bronco Busters and Indians and Buffalo Hunters, sheriffs and marshals and Texas Rangers, who had uh, tamed frontier towns, and the cowboys and prospectors who had shot up the same towns on Saturday nights, and serving right alongside them Irish cops from New York and Protestant clergymen from New England, fox hunters and yachtsmen and British adventurers, the world's best polo player, and the amateur tennis champion of the United States. The irony is that Roosevelt's biggest struggle was, first of all, to read about command. He had never commanded men before, but here he is. He's lieutenant colonel of this regiment. And because Leonard Wood was indisposed, and because the biggest threat to everybody that we sent down to Cuba in this war was disease rather than Spanish bullets, he had a lot to learn before leading his men into what he called my crowded hour. What occurred in that crowded hour changed the course of American history and determined the future course of Theodore Roosevelt's life. You're a grand old flag, you're a high-flying flag, and forever in peace may you wait. You're the emblem of the land I love, the home of the free and the brave. Every heart beats true under red, white, and blue, where there's never... The great song by George M. Cohan, uh, The Grand Old Flag, performed by James Cagney in a, um, a film of the 1940s, Yankee Doodle Dandy. Great, great film. And uh, the song originally came out in time for Washington's birthday in 1906, uh, at a time when American patriotism and self-confidence and love for that grand old flag was at a height under President Theodore Roosevelt. And Theodore Roosevelt became an American hero before he entered the presidency. And he did so with his audacious move to quit his job as Assistant Secretary of the Navy and uh, to insist on actually going to the front and fighting in the Spanish-American War. He, um, he had organized a regiment with Leonard Wood called the Rough Riders. And th there's a, a good summary about Roosevelt's approach and what he was about and what his aims were that was written by Lawrence Clark Powell, a great historian at UCLA, who writes, seen from today's viewpoint of mechanized and missile warfare, the idea of a band of horsemen sweeping through the Cuban jungles is preposterously romantic. Roosevelt had no inhibiting restraints. With all the fervor of a crusader of the Middle Ages sworn to liberate Jerusalem from the infidels, 
he set about to drive the Spaniard from the New World. He was fanatically imperialistic, bloodthirsty, and righteous. And one might also add fearless and foolhardy. He went to war with 12 specially made spectacles, knowing that uh, they had to be sewed into different parts of his uniform because without his spectacles, he could barely see. And there were other problems. Uh, the Most of the mounts, most of the horses for the Rough Riders never made it to Cuba. They barely made it to Cuba. There were all kinds, even though it was only 90 miles away from Florida, they trained in Texas and they did a lot of riding in Texas and TR enjoyed it a great deal. But by the time they finally got on boats to go to Cuba, there were only a few of the horses that made it with them. Roosevelt had taken two horses for himself, one of which never made it, the other of which was actually dumped out and had to swim to shore. That was his Mount Texas. So as commander of the regiment on the ground, what was supposed to be a mounted infantry regiment, he was the only one with a horse, which of course made him an incredible target. The uh, Rough Riders were aided by the 1st Cavalry and by black troops of the 10th Cavalry. And none of them had horses except for TR. And they were advancing up a range of hills behind the Cuban city of Santiago, where the Spanish were heavily dug in, where they had most of their forces. It was the battle that would decide this war. And Roosevelt was uh, waiting for his orders to um, charge up the hill to lead his men. And as, as he wrote, and it's typical of his writing, all men who feel any power of joy in battle know what it is like when the wolf rises in the heart. And he was waiting for other officers to help lead the charge. They didn't make it to the front. And he decided to go up himself. He um, he got on his horse, Texas, and he led his Rough Riders forward. There were other troops that were waiting behind them, but he told the Rough Riders to follow him. And he said to another officer, if you don't wish to go forward, please let my men pass. So he got on his horse. He started waving his hat over his head, which he loved to do. And he spurred his horse and started up the hillside. His spectacles fell off almost right away, and he somehow managed to replace them as he rode. As uh, historians have observed, it, it truly is a miracle. It is unthinkable that he wasn't seriously wounded or killed. There were men who were killed all around him. He, he described in his own Lawrence Clark Powell says the fact that he wasn't killed was an open miracle. said, Roosevelt gallantly led the famous charge of the Battle of San Juan Hill, which preceded the surrender of Santiago. It is a miracle he was not killed. Well, yes, it was. And he also continued his advance. They took Kettle Hill, which was the first Spanish position, and just overwhelmed it. 
And I think they were so surprised that the people kept running and running up the hill. And this crazy officer in the lead waving his hat, replacing his spectacles. And then he got off his mount and on foot continued ahead by himself with only five men behind him. He had forgotten to give the order for the others to follow him. He did, and they prevailed. And uh, it was an amazing moment. Frederick Remington, the great Western artist, uh, did a painting trying to imagine the totally foolhardy, reckless gallantry of Theodore Roosevelt leading his men on horseback in the face of Spanish rifles and artillery and more, and somehow uh, avoiding injury or death, even though he was nicked at one point at, around the elbow by a passing bullet. He, um, he believed he deserved the Medal of Honor, and he got it long after his death. Uh, there were political reasons why he wasn't given it, but he did tell a friend that I do not want to be vain, but I do not think that anyone else could have handled this regiment quite as I have handled it. And people in the regiment said, yeah, that's true. He's right. One of his men said, we were drawn to him. We'd have gone to hell with him. Instead, they went to Santiago. A, um, he always referred to this as his crowded hour, as the great day of my life. And uh, a friend wrote to his wife, Edith, at home with their six children. No hunting trip so far has ever equaled it in Theodore's eyes. So said a rough rider. He was just reveling in victory and gore. And there was plenty of gore. But all of this made him a national hero. This compelling figure of this Harvard intellectual, who was also a cowboy, who was now a war hero, and would soon become governor of the state of New York, and then two years later, president of the United States. How did that happen? We'll continue the story in this special broadcast of the Michael Medved Show. Theodore Roosevelt, the all-American boy. You're listening to a special broadcast of the Michael Medved Show. It is called Theodore Roosevelt, the All-American Boy. And during the brief Spanish-American War, it was referred to by Secretary of State John Hay as a splendid little war. Uh, Roosevelt actually played the crucial role in both of the decisive victories. When it came to the battle, naval battle of Manila Bay, he had uh, taken the initiative while his boss, the Secretary of the Navy, was away to dispatch the American Navy and to be prepared at a moment's notice to go ahead and seize the entire Spanish fleet. He had done that in Washington. Then he had uh, quit his job in the administration, rushed to the front, and with no military experience, participated in the most decisive land battle of the war. In that battle which is known as the Battle of San Juan Hill. It was actually Kettle Hill that he attacked first. In that battle of uh, his regiment, he, he was commanding 
490 men. A hundred of them were killed or wounded. Amazingly, miraculously, Roosevelt was not among them, even though he was riding at the front of the troops, waving his hat, the only one on horseback. He came home, and before he even set foot back on American soil, people had started talking about his candidacy for governor of New York. Now, one of the reasons for that was there was an incumbent governor in New York named Frank S. Black, who was in a great deal of trouble. He had been elected just two years before, but he had a little bit of a problem with the Erie Canal. One of his appointees to the Erie Canal Commission had stolen or had inappropriately spent a million dollars, which in today's money is ten, twenty million dollars. A lot of money. So the Republicans were looking for some candidate and they were very queasy about Roosevelt. Uh, The boss of New York, the Republican boss, was known as the easy boss. He was a U.S. senator named uh, Tom Platt. And the easy boss looked at Roosevelt and he knew his reputation as being a reformer who basically just steamrolled any opposition when he was in the, the legislature years before. And he wasn't so thrilled. And Roosevelt did something that was politically ingenious. He uh he began making plans to allow a tiny independent party to nominate him. Now, he knew he could never win running as an independent in a two-party state, but the fact that he might be on the ballot and siphon away Republican votes in any event, the uh, Republicans eventually decided he had to be the candidate, and they got rid of the incumbent governor, Frank S. Black. It was going to be a tough year for Republicans. But Roosevelt was a natural at campaigning. He didn't wear his uniform when he campaigned, but he wore sort of a floppy hat that looked like his Rough Rider hat. And he was surrounded by Rough Riders in uniform. They they loved Colonel Roosevelt, and they traveled with him everywhere. And every single rally all across the state of New York began the same way. A bugle call with the Rough Riders up there on stage saluting. And then when Colonel Roosevelt bounded on stage, and he didn't just come onto stage. He always bounded on stage. He was a jumpy guy. The uh, the rallies were like what no one had ever seen before. And he spoke largely about foreign policy and military policy, even though his job as governor wouldn't involve too much of that. But um, one Republican leader who watched his campaign, said, the speech was nothing, but the man's presence was everything. It was electrical, magnetic. I looked in the faces of hundreds and saw only pleasure and satisfaction. He was a political natural. And uh, the, the truth of the matter is it was a close campaign. He only won the governorship. This is in 1898 by about 17,000 votes in a big state. But here he was, elected governor, moving into the governor's mansion and proceeding to a program of reform that people truly did not believe to be possible. This is an amazing thing. In his first year as governor, the Republican legislature, he got them to pass a 1,000 bills which he signed, some of them very substantial reforms. 
and so naturally, of course, from the moment he set foot back in the United States and then he was elected as governor, people were talking about higher office. But President McKinley was a popular incumbent. So he wasn't going to run against him for president in 1900. But who knows, maybe in 1904. But then fate intervened with a double whammy of surprises that changed the course of the life of Theodore Roosevelt, all-American boy. This special broadcast on The Michael Medved Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Michael Medved History Show, Theodore Roosevelt, the all-American boy. If you'd like a copy of this program, visit medvedhistorystore.com. That's medvedhistorystore.com. There you can find MP3 audio downloads, or you can order CDs. We have lots of programs on offer about the American Revolution, the Constitution, profiles of Martin Luther King Jr., Abraham Lincoln, shows about taxation, the worst presidents in American history. It's all at medvedhistorystore.com. Theodore Roosevelt is a name that almost every American knows and certainly should know. Uh, but uh, his fate was determined by another name that almost nobody knows. Do you know the uh, historical figure Gus Hobart? No, I didn't think so. His, his real name was Garrett Augustus Hobart, universally known as Gus. A very likable and prosperous lawyer from New Jersey. Don't hold that against him. He had served uh, in the New Jersey legislature for a while and was a surprise pick for vice president in McKinley's first term. He had almost identical views to President McKinley. He's actually a very useful vice president. But just as nobody knows who he is today, when he was elected vice president in 1896, nobody knew who he was. People didn't pay much attention to him. And then at age 55, he dropped dead. Heart disease. Four children at home young man and president mckinley this is november 1899 was just about to fight for re-election and almost immediately when vice president hobart died suddenly unexpectedly the attention of republicans everywhere was we need roosevelt governor roosevelt this wildly popular very young governor of new york state Problem was, Roosevelt hated the idea of uh, being vice president. He um, he wrote to his friend, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge, I'm a comparatively young man and I like to work. I do not like to be a figurehead. It would not entertain me to be vice president, to preside in the Senate. I couldn't do anything. And again, for a man of action... Uh, to be vice president, it wasn't something he wanted. He wanted to run again for governor when uh, he he surely would have been able to do so. And he wrote back and let people know if the administration wanted to give him a job, he'd be willing to be secretary of war. That sounded pretty cool because then he would be in charge of the whole army. But that wasn't in the offing. And one of the reasons that there was a big drive for him to get added to the ticket as vice president was uh, because the easy boss, his associate, uh, Senator Platt, 
had a desire, as he put it, to kick him upstairs. I mean, Theodore Roosevelt was an opinionated, strong, and overwhelmingly popular governor. And uh, what happened with this was that um, the convention proceeded and there was almost an uh, unstoppable and undeniable push, uh, virtually unanimously by the convention, it was meeting in Philadelphia in 1900, to put Roosevelt on the ticket as vice president. We'll be right back here on the Michael Medved Show. You're listening to a special history program, Theodore Roosevelt, the All-American Boy. You're listening to the Michael Medved History Show, Theodore Roosevelt, the All-American Boy. There was almost an uh, un stoppable and undeniable push uh, virtually unanimously by the convention that was meeting in Philadelphia in 1900 to put Roosevelt on the ticket as vice president. Boss Platt said that Roosevelt might as well stand under Niagara Falls and try to spit water back as to stop his nomination. Well, he still wanted to stop it. There was a top-level meeting between Boss Platt and Governor Roosevelt in Philadelphia, right before the delegates voted on the vice presidency. And Roosevelt said, I do not want it. He wanted another term as governor. And uh, Platt said, I swear, if you turn this down, I will oppose you as governor. You will not run again as governor. So Roosevelt basically said, all right. And uh, he realized that he, he was a young man. He wasn't even 42 yet. That uh, this was just something that he had to do for his party. And then presumably McKinley would retire in 1904. And who knows? I mean, part of what he was thinking about was this. Up to this time, vice presidents hadn't done particularly well in American history. And in fact, there were four vice presidents who had taken over when a president died. And they'd all been disasters. John Tyler, who took over for William Henry Harrison. And then Millard Fillmore, who took over for Zachary Taylor. And Andrew Johnson, who took over for Lincoln. And then Chester A. Arthur, who took over for Garfield. Now, none of these guys ever got a term on their own. And none of these guys are remembered in the grandiose terms that Roosevelt wanted for himself. He took the nomination and uh, he campaigned ferociously. In fact, Finley Peter Dunn, who had this fictional character, Mr. Dooley, who was a sort of a dialect Irishman, who was very, very popular, he said, Teddy ain't running, he's galloping. And he was galloping all over the country. And his rallies were jammed. And uh, McKinley ended up winning uh, the race by a lot. He liked Theodore Roosevelt anyway. As a matter of fact, Roosevelt recalled that uh, President McKinley used to visit the Navy Department fairly regularly, and he would see him there when he was Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and he would say, uh, oh, Mr. Roosevelt, have you gotten into, us into another war recently? And uh, because uh, one of the great interests that Teddy had back then was going to war to seize Canada, he wanted to annex Hawaii, that ultimately was done. 
Uh, he was very much a U.S. expansionist. But now all of a sudden he is vice president. And uh, it, it was a, a sort of a difficult job for him to figure out exactly what to do. He spent a lot of time with his family. He um, was not particularly included as an advisor to President McKinley. McKinley's great friend and political guru, Mark Hanna, a senator from Ohio. Uh, Mark Hanna was very wary of Roosevelt. He uh, he didn't think that he had the temperament to be a successful president. Certainly not the calming temperament of a William McKinley. And then in September of 1901, uh, during his very first few months as vice president, he had been vice president because president took over in March then for about six months. President McKinley went up to uh, Buffalo to uh, preside over a World's Fair. And what happened at that World's Fair made Theodore Roosevelt president of the United States. We will get to that and more in this story of Theodore Roosevelt, the all-American boy. This is Michael Medved at michaelmedved.com. Only rarely does a new film come along to remind movie lovers of Hollywood's golden age some 80 years ago. Greyhound, starring Tom Hanks, is that sort of old-fashioned thriller, notably enriched by state-of-the-art special effects and riveting action sequences showing World War II's Battle of the Atlantic. Hanks, who also wrote the screenplay, portrays a destroyer captain given his first command, leading a crucial Anglo-American convoy across the ocean, but facing destruction by wolf packs of German submarines. Based on a 1955 novel by C.S. Forrester, who also wrote the beloved Horatio Hornblower series, this film gives loving attention to the hero's profound Christian faith. Hank shows the overburdened commander at prayer on multiple occasions while portraying the emotional bonds between men of every background facing danger together. As with Saving Private Ryan, where Hanks also starred, or the great John Adams miniseries, which he produced, Greyhound enriches our culture with an inspiring story of American heroism. I'm Michael Medved. On the Michael Medved Show special broadcast, Theodore Roosevelt, the All-American Boy, it was a coincidence that both the president and the vice president in September of 1901, the very beginning of the month, were in upstate New York at the same time. President McKinley went up to the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo, New York, which was quite an impressive World's Fair with some of the very most impressive up to that time demonstrations of electricity. And uh, Theodore Roosevelt, the vice president, was making a speech in upstate, and then he was going to join his family at a cabin in the Adirondack Mountains. And President McKinley was in a receiving line, in the middle of the World's Fair and shaking hands and a stranger came up to shake his hand, pulled a gun out of his belt, I held it against the president's stomach and fired. McKinley went down. He was grievously wounded, but he was expected to live. President Roosevelt, who was nearby in upstate New York, rushed over to his bedside. And it's very clear from his letters that whatever his ambitions he he 
prayed for and hoped for the president's speedy recovery. And and indeed, by September 10th, a few days after the shooting, the president had taken a turn for the better. He was talking and functioning, and he was expected to recover. And Roosevelt went on to join his family in the Adirondack Mountains on Mount Tehannis. And uh, he did that partially to reassure the country that McKinley would be fine. But then uh, a messenger reached him, and there was no telegraph. The messenger had to go up the slopes of the mountain, find Vice President Roosevelt. President McKinley had taken a turn for the worse. And as he was rushing back down the mountain and to a train station that day, the president died. And at age 42, America had its youngest president ever. And yes, still younger than John Kennedy was when he was elected or Barack Obama when he was elected. Theodore Roosevelt was our youngest president ever. As uh, Mark Hanna put it, after his great friend had died, now that damned cowboy is president. What that meant for the country just going into a brand new century, this is September of 1901, remember, was amazingly consequential particularly in terms of America's emergence as the dominant world power, militarily, diplomatically, economically, and yes, culturally. Because no one in the world had seen anything quite like that force of nature that was Theodore Roosevelt. So what characterized his seven and a half years as president of the United States, and then the unbelievably dramatic and eventful decade that followed his presidency. We will get to that and much more because his legacy continues to be an amazing and fascinating and yes, glorious part of this greatest nation on God's green earth.